Hello, what did you get? Oh, Dennis. What? I, I'm doing the intro here. Are you? Oh, you're singing. You're singing the title. That is the title of this episode, even though it's not even Halloween yet. Even though it's not even a title. Oh, Come sorry. let us adore <laughs> him. We're going to talk about doors. Talk about doors. Absolutely. But before we talk about doors, we You're have adorable, to... adorable, Jesse. <laughs> Thank you. We, uh, Jesus is adorable. He is able to be adored. Yes. And he's also the door. He said, I'm the door. Yeah. And you know who else are adorable? Our Patreon supporters. Yay! And maybe people are wondering, why would the Liturgy Guys podcast need money? We're not putting this in our pockets. <laughs> I, I it costs yeah. about $250 per episode to produce this thing. Mm-hmm. And we're glad that people like it and listen to it. And priests tell us they preach with some of that and all of that. But it's not free. And uh, it is not free. That's true. It's free for me because I don't get any pay. But <laughs> there are people involved and hosting on the internet and all that stuff. And it costs money. You're so. the only one who gets to listen to the rough cuts, too. So that's yeah. good. <laughs> so not only do I have to record it, I have to listen to it again. And I'm the only one who doesn't get paid. So there you go. Well, uh, no, we do we do need the support, and we are so thankful for all of the Patreon supporters. In fact, we have to give a shout out to Stephen Branch, Stephen Branch, new supporter. And uh, if we you are want the vine, su- he is the branch. Yeah, he is the branch. One of the branch uh, is. But if you want to support us, you can go to Patreon.com/liturgy. And without further ado, episode five of season three of the Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. going to talk to you today about the mass the liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us what are you some kind of altar boy and, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life our, our day-to-day existence it's pretty dang exciting huh? we're called not to some crapshoot called life but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep the liturgical institute is proud to present the liturgy guys You know what this is? No. You don't know what this is? I'm a millennial. I don't know what this is. I'm a Gen Xer. I don't know what this is. <laughs> this is the Mary Tyler Moore Show theme song. Who's Mary Tyler Moore? Start. It's time you started living, Chris. Okay, anyway. Best introduction. What does this have to do with me? This is why. You might just make it after all. You're going to leave this podcast. Wow. Yeah, we definitely don't have the rights to that. There you go. <laughs> well, neither does the person on YouTube. So I'm just. You playing, have no right, Dennis. I'm playing a YouTube video that happened to be near the microphone. You know what, Chris? You <sighs> might just make it after all. It's true. You might. You might just. Then again, I might not. And then doesn't. Don't they like. Throw their hats in there and they freeze. Well, yeah, that well, not they. Just Mary Tyler Moore does it. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, See, pretty good. Jeff. I know. I know things that happened before you were born. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was practically before I was born. So I think that was uh, 72, 73. So we were uh. just toddling around in our poopy diapers then. <laughs> but now you are the mad intellectual crazy oh man God. who's going to talk to us about church doors and <laughs> mystagogy. Church doors, church doors. Tell us about the church doors. Yeah, what do you want to know? Everything. Everything. What's a doornail? That's 
<laughs> yeah, and why is it dead? Why is it dead? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why does the bishop have to use a mallet and says, basically, I'm coming in. This is my yeah, new diocese. When he's knock, knock, knocking when on he's the... he's taking yeah. possession. That sounds mm-hmm. kind yeah, of aggressive, doesn't it? I'm taking possession of your church. Yeah. And then he goes and he oops, that he goes and he knocks on uh, the door. That's actually a part he, of the ritual. Would you say that he's like knock knock knocking on heaven's door? Actually, yes. This, in some strange way, this is all that coming together. Goodness, that was very good, Jesse. Yeah. I almost never say that to you, but that was good. <laughs> yeah, my uh, cogitations and meditations on the church door have something to do with it being the gate of uh, heaven. And this comes from your. Award-winning, best-selling book. Hasn't won any awards. Well, it will. (laughs) Called Devotional Journey into the Mass. Devotional Journey into the Mass. By Christopher Uh, Karstens. I will, will, right now, I will Mm -hmm. give you the award of best book I haven't read yet. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, this uh, book by Sophia Press uh, came out this uh, past year. And every time I check it on Amazon, it's like, I'll, I'll link to butts. it in the in the show notes. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Um, I yeah, it's I think it's doing pretty well, pretty well received. It's a for a how to go to church uh, type of a of a book, but it's uh, eight uh, steps about how to participate more fervently and intellectually and fruitfully in the mass. Excellent. And it begins with uh, how to walk into the church. Well, that doesn't with seem too hard. Swagger. Yeah, <laughs> walking like you own the place. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, in this uh, in yeah, it it does follow, follow kind of a linear uh, uh, progression. You know, so you begin at the church door, and then you do all this stuff in the mass. And the last chapter is actually how to, how to exit the church doors. Mm-hmm. But in this, uh, with a humble swagger, leave uh, after communion, uh, so yes, you yeah. get out of the parking <laughs> lot, slip out the side door. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But uh, it, what uh, I'm taking the the working the walking through the church door as an example of what's called the sacramental principle, which Ooh. listeners of the um, what's this podcast, the Liturgy Guys podcast, <laughs> I've heard this right. before. There's nothing well, to do with school administrators. The right, the right. That's uh, yeah. yeah. Is that the PLE or the PAL? That's the PAL. Yeah. Okay. All right. But this is the PLE that the we're PLE, talking about. Right. Yeah. What Jesse? Yes. What is the sacramental principle? That Dennis was going to just say this, that uh, the sacramental principle is that it conveys grace. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Yeah, that uh, the sacramental principle is that the unseen God and supernatural spirituality, such as grace, uh, comes to us and is made tangible and otherwise sensible to us through outward Sensible signs. 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 God uses stuff to communicate himself to us Mm. that we perceive with our senses. Precisely. And uh, we, of course, know what sacraments are, you know, the Eucharist and baptism and confirmation and things like that. But the thing is that in the liturgy, there's more things besides seven sacraments. Everything in the liturgy has this sacramental uh, quality about it, such that uh, whether it's the Eucharist or the doorknob or the doornail, I guess is the case maybe, can become a medium and a means to encounter Christ. And so uh, this is a very important thing because the liturgy is at its core a sacramental type of reality. That's what it is. As opposed to? Well, it's not a historical one, principally, even though you can learn things and understand things about the liturgy by studying its history. 
It's not a legal or rubrical one, even though there are laws and rubrics and instructions that guide it. It's not a communitarian event, even though it has an effect on the mystical body of Christ. It's uh, the type of thing that it is, is this coming together of heaven and earth, and the point of contact is sacramental signs and symbols. Right. You could watch a play about Abraham Lincoln, but that would not render Abraham Lincoln present to you. You might learn something about it, and it would be some kind of analogy. But the liturgy makes present a reality that already pre-exists us, which is how God is worshipped in heaven, and we have no other way to encounter it except to render it present sacramentally. Yeah. Did you, did you know that Abraham Lincoln was a composer? Yeah, yeah, yeah but he wasn't yeah. very good. He, he only wrote four score in seven years. Oh, that's right. okay. uh, and now he's decomposing? <laughs> no. no, that's the Beethoven. That's a different that's joke. Beethoven. Okay. okay. Uh, or, or another movie example, The Passion of the Christ. Yeah. Right? So the, the content is The Passion of Jesus, The Paschal Mystery, but Mel Gibson's set of signs and symbols and actors and soundtracks and texts and scripts and costumes, those signs and symbols are not efficacious in the way that the church's liturgical signs and symbols are because, as you said, Dennis, the liturgical signs and symbols actually do what they say. And whether this is the Eucharist or a set of doors, they don't, act in, they don't operate in the same way but in similar ways that even the door can be a sacramental encounter with Jesus Christ. All right, so this so, would have some logical implications for door design, so tell it, us. It would, it tell would. Us. Well, let's, uh, uh, before we get to the practical design aspects, let's look at some of these, uh, uh, let's look at the doors in a mystagogical sort of way. I am the door. I am the door. <laughs> yeah, so that's a great place to start. So Jesus. <laughs> was that your mystagogy noise? What was going on? Have you ever seen Wayne's World? Where there? Oh, never that's mind. the time travel I'm a post, thing. I'm a Gen X. We're now standing in front of a door. That's why <laughs> we're being transported. All right. All right, so you, that's a good place. Jesus says, I am the door, which is an otherwise strange Wait, he sort he did of, say that? He said that. Prove I, it. I'm the door, I'm the gate. It's, uh, what is the, uh, actually, what is the biblical passage? I'm the good shepherd. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says no, a lot no, of things yeah, about yeah, himself. Yeah, but this, uh, it's in the context of the good shepherd uh, passage, I think. Okay. That I'm the door, the gate, so, and that those who come in and go out will find pasture. Okay. All right. So what does it mean that Jesus says he is a door? <coughs> he's adorable. This is true, too. So we don't want to be too literal, like he's a door. Right, but we need to understand that he really means he is a, a gateway or a passageway. A bridge, an uh, access point. I think point. I heard, uh, yes, yeah, this, um, I don't know if C.S. Lewis said this or I'm just attributing to it. It's, he doesn't have a doorknob on him, but he is a real, true gate to heaven. So it's like an emergency exit. Uh, <laughs> emergency entrance, kind of entrance with, with a push bar yeah. no door now yeah. just a push bar uh, so there's there's uh, all sorts of doors in the scripture so when Adam and Eve for example get uh, expelled from the garden do you know what happens they're, they go out the doors shut and then there's an angel with a sword of fire standing outside bingo that's great to guard the door to mm -hmm. guard the way to guard the passage back to the tree of life and so in this sense the door takes on this meaning that it is the way of access to the tree of life and right after the fall, that door became closed. Now, eventually, if you fast forward to this, to the, to the doors on your church, you should start to see it as the gateway, the place that gives you access to, get to back in. the tree of life. Yeah. The right. pearly gates, you might say. Well, that's another source, right? So when we do mystagogical catechesis, one of the places is not simply to look back to the Old Testament, to, to look ahead to heaven. And when you look to heaven, uh, it describes 12 gates, right? Well, you know all about this stuff. Mm -hmm. right? uh, each one representing uh, one of the tribes or one of the apostles. Is yeah, right? the apostles as the people who went out to the world to okay. provide the access to the door. Okay. And there's what, three on each side? Yep. And what are they made out of? 
gems. They don't talk about the gates themselves, but the gateways are made of. They have uh, their foundations have the twelve stones, uh, precious stones. Well, but it says each gate is made out of a single pearl. Mm. Hence the you know kind of the the hallmark sort of pearly gate thing. But it's actually a scriptural reference that each gate is made out of its that own is pearl. one big clam. That's one big clam. It's one big pearl. Well, some of the patristic people interpreted the the pearl as a useful image because the pearl begins as an irritant, right? So a little grit of sand or something gets inside an oyster and then it gets covered with this kind of beautiful iridescent hmm. lacquery stuff that turns it from an irritant, kind of like the fallen world into this radiant glorious thing. So God can even use chaotic disordered things and, and turn them into something lovely and beautiful. So even a, a, a connection that may not be there. That gate that we talked about that was uh, blocking the way back in the fallen world mm-hmm. is an irritant and now has become something beautiful and it's a passageway into the tree of life right. that you can eat in the garden. There's that uh, beautiful homily from the Holy Saturday in the Liturgy of the Hours uh, Office of Readings and it says the blood of Christ has extinguished the fire of the flaming sword and now people can oh, get access nice. to the garden again. Nice, nice. Uh, or the, uh, um, I don't know where this came from, the gate is frozen shut only to be lubricated by the anointed one who mm. will freeze up the hinges so, and give access back to the, the WD-40 of our age. <laughs> I was just thinking <laughs> that. Okay, so what does the door mean? It means the access to the tree of life and the gateway to heaven. So when the bishop you know, bangs on the door and knocks on the door, he really is entering it. He's the, he's the lamb standing as if it were slain amidst seven candles and seven burning torches. Well, here he comes back and he's, he's banging on this door to go into the heavenly Jerusalem. So when you walk in your church door, it means this as well, that you're going into this restored temple of heaven. And that is a sacramental act, I would say. It is a sacramental Small act. Ass. So I have chosen to go from the fallen world into the restored, glorified world and to be formed by it. So that door should tell you how important that act is. Well, yeah, it's an act that can change you and that can help. I mean, if you do it uh, thoughtfully and uh, intelligently and prayerfully, uh, it can be a, an occasion for grace. So it, it's not incidental whether you go in the front door, the side door, the back door, the basement door, you know, the elevator, the, the lift, trap the door, ram, whatever it is. Um, what, of door. all of those doors, of all of those doors, the front door has this sacramental quality about it that the other ones don't and have, I would say, a, potential, a potentially greater means to bestow grace upon those who, who walk through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you go back to the Old Testament again, think of uh, Exodus 12, I guess. What, oh, um, yes. Yeah, so this is the, uh, the, first, uh, the first Passover. So they slaughter the lamb, and what do they do with its blood? Post it on the doors. On the they lintel. put it on the door, uh, yeah, on the doorpost and on the lintel. And so in this case, what the door signifies to those, you know, say you're walking down the street and you see this, uh, this door the, with blood on it, it identifies you as belonging to God. And so when you pass through this door of the church today, it's a marker that you belong to God. But also when God or the avenging angel passes over the house, he will see the door and will pass over it and leave its inhabitants protected. So the church door is also a sign of not only belonging to God, but in virtue of that, of being protected from this world's ills and falls and sins and death and the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we talked about the heavenly temple before. What about, uh, you know something about Old, temp- Old Testament temple, or the third temple or mm-hmm. temple of Solomon? Uh, there's all these psalms that speak about how great it is to stand within your gates 
and how yeah. wonderful it is to uh, enter uh, the temple through higher ancient doors. The King of Glory comes in. So there's all that imagery of Christ, in a sense, taking possession of the temple when he comes back on the on the donkey. And there it is. Yeah. Do you know, Dennis, um, which uh, there's different gates in mm-hmm. in Solomon's temple. Do you know which is he came in a particular gate right, that what has they call even the golden s- gate. Okay, and where. Try to paint us a, Was there a, a picture of what at the this Golden Gate. Uh, well, like the it's Golden hard to know. Gate I mean, Bridge, the one that that there are bits left. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> ah, derailing our program once again. <laughs> um, and golden, time to rerail. Golden it. Gate. <laughs> yeah, it was the one that uh, that faced the Kidron Valley. So uh, you have the the big south facing walls where. Um, what most people would see when they would go up to Jerusalem, but the part that you see now and the Wailing Wall is the Western Wall. So the one opposite that was the Eastern Wall, and that's where the Golden Gate was. And that was, they say, part of um, Jewish sort of legend or lore that it that would be opened when the Messiah would come through it. So the Messiah would go through that gate. So today it's all bricked up because people of differing political and or religious thinking don't want any messiahs coming through it so you can't actually get through the golden gate these days but there was a time when you could and it, it was right through and facing the front of the temple building proper so that we're talking about the gates to the mountain top to the temple mount that had the golden gate and but when you came through that gate you went under something called the portico of solomon which was still around from solomon's time from where he consecrated the temple and then you would go right straight through into the temple itself Maybe this is too simplistic, uh, but the Mount of Olives is on the other side, on the east side of the Kidron Valley. Right. Right? So if you were going to go from the Mount of Olives into the temple area, would you, would, he, would Jesus have walked in that gate? Is that what the thinking That's is? That's what they say, that he came in that gate on the donkey. Now, it sounds like a valley. It sounds like a big deal, but it's actually quite small. I mean, you could walk it in five minutes. Hmm. But the, you know, the Kidron Valley had this little stream coming through it, and that's where the blood and water and you know, all the things from the animal sacrifices would exit the temple. So Jesus essentially had to walk through this kind of sludge of horrible death and decay in order to enter into the temple. So it was taking, you know, walking our walk and talking our talk and then returning to the father with us. So hmm. that door was the significant marker of his transition from earth back to heaven. Okay. So if we were to read a church door in light of this, uh, to walk through the church door is to enter into the temple, which is the restored garden, uh, foreshadowed by the, the Old Testament temple. And to <laughs> we talked about walking into the temple with your head held high, like you own the place, mm-hmm. uh, which you kind of are because you, you've been baptized and reformed in the image of Jesus. And that, in fact, is your temple. He, in fact, is the temple. So to walk into that temple, you know, imagine yourself walking uh, through the muck of the Kidron Valley into um, to the restored temple uh, be- because you were the one who was announced to, uh, to come back in. And even, uh, I've learned this from Dennis, in fact, when uh, Constantine, um, you know, the, the tr- it's the triumphal arch. Right, of, in Rome, the Arch of Constantine is there. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's, if you were to look at it, uh, it, it would have been in a, in a, tr- in a, like a wall of the, uh, of the city, right? Well, I, Theoretically, it would. Okay. But, I mean, those things were ceremonial by the time of Constantine's time. But if you imagine a walled city, you'd have to have access to it, and you'd have to have a hole in the wall, basically, with doors that keep people out or let people in. And so the idea of a portal, uh, an opening in the wall, being the place where you get in is the basic concept. And then eventually it became kind of ceremonial. So if, uh, you know, if you set up an arch for the, you know, World Series winning Cubs to come through after their Ooh. win... <laughs> 
<laughs> they're not really entering the city. They're already in the city. But the idea is that they're being which, welcomed. Which by World the Series? City. The one in 2015? Or the one they're Jesse, about to we're, win? We're, we're, come on, we're talking here. <laughs> uh, so, but how this arch would look, there'd be a, a great big portal in the middle and then two smaller ones on either side. Right. That's right? the particular arch of Constantine one. Where okay. They have two small and one big. And when he ended up building the first basilica to St. Peter? Right? Didn't he take that as the more or less make it the facade of? Uh, yeah, it's a little hard to know, but they eventually the arch, the triumphal arch, became the motif for most churches. If you go to an you know older church to this day, you'll see a little door, big door, little door set up. So that's your tri- your triumphal entry into the heavenly Jerusalem. Because Constantine was king or emperor coming back into his city. You are uh, remade in the image of Christ, the King, entering right. into your own. Right, and he was the, well. the first Christian emperor, right? So they kept his memory alive in particular he called himself the 13th apostle constantine oh, no kidding so uh, what i thought that was there were a number eyes. of triumphal arts by arches by other emperors but that, that small arch on either side of a big arch is kind of the constantinian motif interesting hmm. okay so what is what does a, a church mean then uh it means the access to the tree of life which stands in the garden of god it means belonging to God like uh, those in Egypt. It means protection by God from the dangerous world outside. It, it means, means walking around in the cool of the evening with God the way Adam and Eve did, the right relationship okay. of God, and not a fearful one so much anymore as a paternal, trusting, restored relationship. Okay. Yeah. It's, a thre- it, it's a threshold in which you cross because you you commit, you, you say yes, and we see baptism starting at the door of the church and you know saying this is what we want of our child and and all of that. It's an entry threshold. Yeah, that's good. And other sacraments too. A marriage can start Funeral, there. Funeral, Funerals right. will, will start there too. Uh, it means uh, uh, entering into heaven. Uh, it means to encountering Christ. So when Jesus says, I'm the door, I mean, on the surface, that sounds like an odd thing to call oneself. But when you start scratching the surface a little bit and looking at different doors throughout salvation history, you realize that you can't just buy this type of a door at... Home Depot or something like mm-hmm. that. Well, he's access. To, he's the access to the Father, right? He's the door in that sense. So, how do you make a door that looks like Jesus and all of these things? Well, I don't know how you make it look like Jesus, but I do recall many years ago in graduate school, one of my very influential professors named Bill Westfall, and he distinguished with us between a, a door and a portal. I think I actually taught that in class with you back in two thousand. Oh, I remember that very three, clearly. Very <laughs> two thousand two, Chris. Just like it was. Remember, yesterday. I was his teacher back in the day. Yeah, and I still think that's pretty weird. But. He schools me now, but <clears throat> back then, he said a door is a hole in a wall, right? So you you cut a hole in the wall, you get in. A portal is a hole in the wall that is elaborated to tell you how important going in that hole in the wall is. So you can have a triumphal arch, which is basically a hole in the wall. Uh, but it's been elaborated and beautified and, er, and put together in such a way that it tells you how important that ceremonial entrance is. So a door, a, you know, glass lighting door to a supermarket doesn't really carry any sacramental value. But when you say, I'm going into the heavenly Jerusalem, something about that architecture should be telling you how important that is. Yeah. Uh, we talk about this in class with the, the, the two principal ways into the, the principal chapel on campus. So there's this uh, very accessible side door and you walk up to it and it goes and it slides open and it slides open yeah, it's like, and you, like accessing you the bay in Star Trek. It is kind of it's, it's industrial. It's, uh, it's and you metal, need it for like, handicapped access and so on. So sure, but if you go around the front, you have to go up certain steps, and the the door pull on the door is this big. I, you can describe this better than I can. But you know, it's it's kind of I don't know 
metal, metallic. There's this mm-hmm. art. It's designed. And it's a big, heavy door, too. It is. I mean, it's the, 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 they've got to be the biggest doors on the whole campus, mm-hmm. right? And to open it, uh, you know, the other one, you just stand there, and it does all the work. This one, you actually, I mean, you kind of got to get your shoulder into it, a little bit of weight into it, and you start to pull it. And That's committing to going in the door. If you're like, I pull that door open. Yeah, it's not a, an accidental, incidental you know, entry, it's a, it's a true magnificent uh, encounter with Christ. So, yeah, sacramentality is the key to understand. I mean, think just a door, really? A door is significant? And multiply that by the thousand other things that you uh, encounter in Mass, and all of a sudden, it just starts to, to pop and crackle and shout out and scream out these things, just say, Jesus, 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 the more that you have uh, uh, mystagogical senses to encounter them. I agree. That's, yeah, I did all right. Yeah, oh, was that life to say? But I think if you talk practically speaking, you'd say, "All right, I'm going to build a church. What do I tell my architect?" You say, "Make the door big. Make it prominent. Make it important looking. Even make it heavy." Um, you know, people don't like to do that these days. It has to have minimum amount of getting in the way of you entering. But think, okay, how can this door be big? It's very rare that you go in a ten foot door or a fifteen foot door. But if you do. That's a pretty serious uh, commitment. You know, can it be carved? Can it be ornamented in different ways? Can it be made of fine materials? You know, great cathedrals would have bronze doors. And bronze, you know, it's not, not gold, but it's pretty precious material. It's hard to work. You have to melt it. You have to mold it. You have to polish it. You have to put it all together. Like to make a bronze door means something really important is, is happening here. And it could be used in ways that prefigure what you're going to do inside. Maybe it's Old Testament symbols on the outside and then the second set of doors as New Testament symbols or some kind of invitation to what you do. You know, my uh, kind of hero architect, Edward Schulte, who you know, uh, in the 50s, he did a lot of kind of modern looking churches, but they're very traditional. And he would have a aluminum frame because aluminum was real trendy at that time. But then the glass in the door would have etched patterns of a cross with a crown to symbolize the victory of Christ. And as you enter, you're going to take the victory of Christ on yourself. Or there would be incense uh, things with the smoke rising on the, you know, etched into the glass so that when the minute you came in the door, you would know you were going in to let your prayers rise up to heaven and offer sacrifice to God. So it's, it's a little, um, I guess, visual coffee. We talked in the antiphon coffee. about coffee for the ears or the brain. You know, when you hear the entrance antiphon, it's about what's going on in mass that day, the reading or the saint. This kind of tells you right away, boom, I'm going in here. This is what I'm doing. It's a reminder uh, right there. And so it has that role both in disposition, right, to help you get ready to pray or to actually remind you what are you doing right here, right now. And if you don't consciously reckon, oh, I'm Christ at the door, I'm going through the door, at least if you know you're doing something important, like that's a minimum. If it just seems too cheap, too easy, too light, too quick, right out of the catalog, then something's not being, doesn't have that full sacramental expression that it ought to have. Is there anything special that happens to the door and the rite of dedication of a church? Yeah, for the rite of a dedication of a church, it uh, it begins outside the church, and it, there's a procession that goes to the door. And at this point, there's some different rites. There's a, there's a handing over of documents and even of keys uh, to the bishop, who I don't know if he actually unlocks the door, but there's a, mm-hmm. there's a, a symbolic or sacramental transaction that happens uh, at the doorway of the church. Beyond that, I don't know. Do, do, do they anoint the door along with the walls at all? Or? No. Okay. No. Okay. No. There is the there is a right for the blessing of new church doors in the Book of Blessings. I don't think there's an anointing in there okay. uh, either. But uh, yeah, um, doors are very important and they're easy to to overlook. You might remember the uh, 
there was a holy door during the year of mercy. Oh, there's yeah. a holy door during the uh, that was uh, millennial awesome. year and things like that. So, um, you know, the church at least has always recognized the importance of doors, and as uh, they're important because they're they're occasions to, to pray and to encounter Christ and. You know, it's um, to make the liturgy, to make the mass more fruitful, more interesting, more uh, important in our lives and for the lives of our kids and whatnot is, is to start to see these types of uh, sacramental things. So anyway, don't right. ever go in the side door. Always go make the effort if you can to go around to the front door and go in that way. It can be uh, it's worth more fruitful. It. Mm-hmm. it is very worth it. All right. Thanks, guys. Should we answer a liturgy question? All right, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> so you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? This next question is from Matt, and Matt says, Hi, Liturgy guys. Hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. You may Chris. Hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. Thank you. There you go. You may have already discussed this in a previous episode, but could you speak on the recent trend of including the prayer to St. Michael either at the end of Mass or after the prayers of the faithful? I'd also like to hear your thoughts on the prayer itself. Uh, It never mentions Jesus, but regardless of its merits, the priests at my parish and I both agree that there is no reason or justification for its inclusion within the liturgy. Thanks for your thoughts and all that you do on the podcast. Well, thanks, Matt. Thanks Thanks for listening. Well, the, the prayer has uh, kind of a, we don't really know where it came from. I mean, it's, prayers rise up in tradition and they get used in different ways. I mean, St. Michael's Did, always the battle. Didn't this come from uh, Pope uh, Leo the thirteenth? Well, he's the one who added it after low mass. It's called the Leonine prayers. But St. Michael, historically, has always been evoked as the battle saint who does battle against evil. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this myth and or lore, I mean, it, many historians say that Leo the thirteenth in 1886 when he instituted these prayers, it was because he had this mystical vision of hearing a um, conversation, conversation between between God, God and, the, and devil. the devil. And God said he was giving the devil a certain amount of time to corrupt man. And this, Satan was threatening to uh, destroy the church. And so he would give him 75 or 100 years um, to do it. So, of course, this leads to all kinds of speculation. When did those 100 years up? And would this really happen? But in, nonetheless, however, wherever it came from, there were several prayers that were added at the end of low mass including the St. Michael prayer. One was um, later added um, for the exaltation of Mother Church for churches under communism. But there's a little group of prayers in Our Father, some Hail Marys, and um, another prayer, and the St. Michael prayer. So it was all there up until Vatican II. And then I think the reformers after Vatican II thought it was an accretion that wasn't really proper to the Mass, so they sort of took it out from being a mandatory prayer. So the question now is, Chris, because this is where I think you can come in is is it legit to do it 
No, no. There's a bishop in, I think, in Pennsylvania recently who mandated that the St. Michael prayer would be said after every mass. Now, just that's recently, after mass. after mass because of all the scandals that happened and wanting to thwart the power of the devil. So the basic reason that people add it is because they think the devil is operative in the world, and this prayer to you know St. Michael would help defend us in battle, as as the prayer itself asks. So it's probably not licit to add it to the prayer, the universal prayer. Correct. Petition of the faithful. Right. Uh, the the outline of the universal prayer is pretty explicit in the general instruction. The priest leads it. He introduces it. Then a deacon or another minister proposes intercessions that the people can either respond to collectively or pray silently. And then the priest himself uh, prays like a colic type prayer that's addressed to God the Father. It says that in the general instruction. So I don't think replace. I mean, you can't change that any more than you can change any other parts uh, of the Mass. Uh, but after Mass, I mean, I think uh, from a certain point of view, after the deacon says, Ite Misa Est, it, the words mean when they say, it's over. Do whatever you want. <laughs> Doesn't mean that. Go but, uh, party. But uh, um, I think if it, if it were going to be introduced, it would be at that at that point, would be the best place. So, and I've heard, the, I've heard a Hail Mary being said after the prayers of the faithful, um, in, in introduced by the priest too, but is that not allowed? I mean, no, it's not prescribed. Uh, no, no. It's uh, Father Martis answered this in the September Adoramus Bulletin about. Oh, what's that? Yes. What's Are you the editor of the Adoramus Bulletin? I am. The good, got, the good you, issues. You definitely got to read Adoramus Bulletin. It's amazing. It, yeah, thank you. It's uh, uh, no, and it, in fact, editing this uh, uh, answer of uh, reading this answer of his is what is why I have these things in life. So no, I mean you can't you can't replace the formula with anything. Saint Michael prayer, Hail Mary, things like that. The, uh, it, it's clear from the general instruction how the universal prayers take place. But praying the Saint Michael prayer after it's all over, I think would be, uh, you know, if, if a bishop or a pastor wanted to introduce it, that would be the place to do so. Okay. But you're right. I think in the, if I remember this from my classes, it's sort of at the end of liturgical units, say, that things get appended, you know, and the rest. Even the, I think this is the story of the final blessing, right? You think of the bishop walking down the aisle after mass. Well, that oh, sort yeah, of. Oh, yeah, he that, gives blessings. Right. That. What? I mean, in the extraordinary form, right, there's a, there's a dismissal and then there's the blessing. Right, versus now we have the blessing and then the dismissal because the, the blessing was kind of taken from the bishop or the priest walking on his way back to the sacristy blessing people to being stuck on the end of the mass. And so this is where you're talking about accretions, whether they're good, bad, or other, you know, legit, whatever. That's not the question here, but that's where they end up finding themselves. So the prayer to St. Michael came at the end of, coming at the end of mass is where it had been and today looks like in some places it's being practiced again. And the prayer as we have it now was composed by Leo the Thirteenth. There must have been prayers to St. Michael before, but the one we have now is actually composed by him after this vision, theoretically, and then put in the end of the Mass. So a bishop doing blessings uh, uh, in the processional after Mass is kind of a moot point just because the Mass is over at no, that point? No, it's not a moot point, but it's, um, you know, when you, if you were to look at it simply from the historical angle, you would, yeah, then you would say, well, this is weird and strange and redundant, and, you know, the history isn't consistent with yeah. it. But it's, you can't look at the liturgy just from as a historical thing. It's many more things besides that. But that at least, I think, what appears is the genesis of the blessing of the end of Mass is the bishop or the priest blessing people on his way back to the sacristy from the sanctuary. All right, Matt, take. I hope that answers your question. If you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet 
liturgy guys, tweet at us. Don't tweet Dennis at dmegadi megadi. Just dmegadi. Oh, but you can tweet. Don't me. tweet dmegadi megadi. We don't. We do not like that person. I, do you know Chris actually came up with that? He was listening to uh, chickadees, and they go chickadee dee dee. And he used to start calling me mackadee dee mackadee. So that's how my little Twitter that's handle cute. came about. Anyway, see you guys later. Bye bye. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.